Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely, its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode 14, 6,000 Batmans of Wine. This is the first episode of the year 2024, and I am recording it on January 1. On the Islamic calendar, the current year is 1445, and it is 1402 on the Iranian calendar. No matter which calendar you use, I hope your New Year's Eve celebration was both fun and safe. When I picked up some family members from the airport on the evening of December 31, I encountered a vehicle going the wrong way on the one-way road toward the arrival terminal. I was going slow enough to avoid a head-on collision, but the other driver kept going instead of stopping to turn around. Good times. According to the Encyclopedia Ironica, the old Persian calendar was similar to that of the Babylonian, with 12 months of 30 days each. It was based on observations of the moon and the sun, and thus called a lunisolar calendar. The days were numbered but not named, with the exception of the last day of the month. The Achaemenids also used a lunisolar calendar at least until 459 BC. Alexander the Great probably used the Macedonian calendar, but also did not abolish the Achaemenid system. The Babylonian calendar was adopted by Seleucus I, 321-281 BC, but the original names of the months were replaced by the Macedonian names. This calendar became the Sassanid civil calendar after 212 AD, but other calendars attempted greater accuracy by adding one month every 120 years, or one month every 116 years, in order to recover the quarter days plus an additional one-fifth of an hour per year. There is significant debate about when exactly these intercalary calendars were introduced. After the Muslim colonizers took over in 651 AD, they needed a more consistent calendar for determining mandatory religious observances. And when the Islamic military had completed its conquest, installed new settlers, and forced its religion on the current population, effective administration of the new theocratic empire required a calendar suitable for the collection of taxes and tribute. Several calendars introduced over the Islamic period were adaptations of ancient Iranian systems, and Iran also practiced cultural appropriation, borrowing as needed from indigenous peoples and foreigners. In Persia, the date is March 30, 1637, and our travelers are in the Kur Valley near the modern-day border of Azerbaijan and Iran. After days of freezing in the mountains, they now encounter nothing but fair weather, a sky clear and without any cloudiness, except for a light haze in the mornings that is quickly burned off by the sun. As they move toward the river crossing at the village of Sawat, a very fantastic kind of transmigration passes by. Shepherds with their wives and children, marching with entire households packed in wagons, on horses, cows, asses, and other creatures that Europeans did not use as transportation. The village, named Sagawet on a map from 1765, and today named Kavad on Google Earth, is just a couple miles from the confluence of two celebrated historic rivers, the Araxes and the Cyrus, 
today named the Aras and the Kura, respectively. The river continues to the sea as the Kura, and Alarius says that near the bridge it is about 400 paces wide. The water is black and deep, with a high bank on both sides. Licorice grows all along the riverside, with stalks as many times as big as a man's arm, and its juice is beyond all comparison, sweeter and more pleasant than that of Europe. The river Kura serves as a common frontier to the two provinces of Shirvan and Mokan, and the bridge near Sawat is made of boats. Jan Strois, a Dutch sailmaker who journeyed to Persia in 1670 on the same route taken by Brueggemann's embassy, provided more detail about this bridge in his own book. At this place is a long bridge made of keels and thwarted with massy planks that are fastened together with great bolt and chains, for which better security is guarded with a good number of soldiery. His book, published in 1676, was titled The Perilous and Most Unhappy Voyages of John Stroys Through Italy, Greece, Lifeland, Muscovia, Tartary, Media, Persia, East India, Japan, and other places in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Stroys and his companions were enslaved upon arriving in Dagestan, sold to a Persian man in Erevan, and sold again to the Polish ambassador in Shimaki, from which our own voyagers have only recently departed. The staff of the Dutch East India Company in Isfahan heard about the fate of their countrymen and petitioned the Shah, who sent a royal command to the governor of Shimaki to release the ten remaining Dutch slave prisoners. The governor delayed for six months, but ultimately released them. Today, the village of Sawat is about 35 miles north of the border with Iran. The Germans spend a couple days there in homes built of reeds and canes and covered with earth. They cross the river on April 2 and are met by a guide from the city of Ardabil. They transfer their belongings to 40 camels and 300 horses, being informed that wagons are not suitable for the next 120 miles of road through mountains and valleys. Each day on the road to Ardabil, they are supplied with 10 sheep, 30 batmans of wine, along with rice, eggs, almonds, raisins, and as much fruit as they please. A batman is a unit of weight, used in various Middle Eastern countries and derived from the ancient man, which was approximately 4 kilograms. The man may have originated in Chaldea, a country that existed 10 centuries before Christ in Mesopotamia. The word Batman first appeared in English in 1599 A.D. and was reckoned to be 7 pounds and 5 ounces. Valerius tells us that 4 Batmans is 26 pounds, so the Persian Batman of the time was 6.5 pounds, and the Germans get almost 200 pounds of wine. John Chardin, a French jeweler who traveled in Persia multiple times between 1666 and 1677, and became the Shah's agent for the purchase of jewels, wrote that the country did not use any measure of volume, like the European bushel, because everything was sold by weight. Chardin wrote a book that was supposed to be published in Paris in four volumes. Only one volume appeared in 1686, which was simultaneously released in English. The other three volumes did not appear in French until two years before Chardin's death in 1713, published in Amsterdam. A ten-volume expansion of the original work was produced in 1731. 
a publisher in London, one Mr. J. Smith, released an English translation in 1720 as an eight-volume subscription. Due to insufficient interest in the first book containing volumes one and two, Smith erased the number eight from the title page and replaced it with the number two. That didn't sell either, so in 1721 he changed the title and reissued it in one volume. But he ended up selling all his remaining copies to another company, which in 1724 released them under yet a different title bearing the names of four different publishers. A four-volume edition appeared in 1735, censoring out certain religious attacks on the Calvinists. A complete version of Chardin's book did not appear until 1811 in Paris. Our own author, Adam Olarius, tells us that the embassy departs Sawat on Sunday, April 2, after the morning sermon, and follows the river Eras to the southwest. For the next two nights, their guide provides a number of portable huts to sleep in. The route along the river continues southwest, but their destination, the city of Ardabil, lies due south. On April 4, they are forced to leave the Aras River Valley and travel across lowland steppe country to the Balaru River. Olarius calls this the Heath of Mokan. The region contains no large towns, but does have rich pastures and fertile agricultural lands. Timur the Lame restored an ancient irrigation canal system there in 1401, and today there are vast farms and pastures irrigated by numerous canals. At the torrent called Balaru, which is today but a stream, the Germans find an abundance of tortoises that make nests along the riverside and in the sand of the little hills nearby. The people living there are poor, their children go about stark naked, and the older persons wear nothing but a cotton shirt or smock. But they entertain the Germans very kindly, bringing them milk to drink. They thought that the king of Persia had sent for us to serve him in his wars against the Turk, Olarius writes, and they prayed for our good success, that God would make their and our enemy fly before us, as far as Constantinople. So many Persian towns have been moved or renamed since 1637 that it's difficult to determine exactly which route the Bergaman mission takes. For instance, Olarius says they reach the mountain and country of Betsirwan on April 5 and sleep that night in a village called Sheshmarat. They reach a village named Teal on April 6, lodge in the village of Zanlu on April 7, and a day later they cross the Karasu River at Samayan or Samajan, I'm not sure, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing a lot of these things the wrong way. Maps from the 17th and 18th century contain places with similar names, and several, including the 1730 map by Guillaume de Lille, clearly mark the road from Shimaki to Ardbil. Modern maps have a few similar names, but not enough for me to identify the specific route. For example, the modern town of Samian is near a river crossing, but the Karasu River is more than 10 miles to the north. Today, there are two main roads from the Azerbaijan border to Ardabil. My best guess is that the Germans take a northwestern route along what is now Highway 31, instead of Highway 33, which lies to the southeast. They find absolutely no one in Sheshmarat because the residents have been warned that the Germans are a sort of barbarous people who not only ransack towns but beat the local citizens. And so, Olarius tells us, the entire population is hiding on a nearby mountain. 
In this way, we can see that Brueggemann's reputation precedes him. In the village of Thiel, they are about to make camp when someone informs them that the plague killed most of the residents in the autumn of 1636. They leave immediately, and the gentlemen pitch their tents in a field. Ambassador Brueggemann so viciously accuses one of the workers of bringing the plague into his tent that Olarius tells us the man falls ill from stress. The rest of the crew has no shelter, so their guide has some mobile huts brought in late that night, loaded on oxen. Some in the company find the weather too cold, so they occupy a nearby house, make a good fire, spend the night merrily with wine they had saved from the day before, and try to forget Brueggemann, who causes everyone as much fear as the plague itself. They make ten leagues, about 45 miles, the next day, forcing the animals into a continuous trot in the cold, the wind, and the snow. The day's journey not only disheartens the company, but many fall sick, and some of their camels collapse. Not only that, but wormwood, used to make the hallucinogenic liquor we call absinthe, grows along the road in abundance. We were told, Alarius writes, that the herb of it is so venomous that if horses or any other creature eat thereof, they die immediately. So all of the animals remain bridled for the entire day. Around noon, they meet a Persian and his two servants, who have been sent from the governor of Ardabil to take them the rest of the way. On April 7, they send some men ahead to find quarters in Ardabil. That night, they stay in the village of Zanlu, which might be the modern town of Samanlu, where excellent gardens and fruit trees grow. But there is no firewood, so they burn cow dung, horse dung, and camel dung instead. The next day, near the village of Samayan, they cross the Karasu River on a very fair stone bridge, containing six noble arches. The Koda Afarn Bridge over the Aras River, located on the border with Azerbaijan some 80 miles to the north, is one example of what the Samayan Bridge might have looked like. Less than a mile below a modern dam and power station, the bridge was first documented by a 14th-century Persian geographer. Destroyed numerous times over the years, historians differ on when it was first built, but it probably dates to the First Persian Empire of 550 to 330 BC, also called the Achaemenid Empire, which we mentioned in Episode 9. According to an 18th-century Persian myth, the bridge is called Kudafaran, meaning God-created, because several attempts to rebuild it failed between 1256 and 1335, and the bridge suddenly appeared one day. After crossing the river, the Germans spend the night in Tabadar, less than ten miles from Artabil, and the locals have daubed animal dung on the walls of their houses, which dries quickly in the sun and creates fuel for their stoves. But the practice also attracts clouds of fleas and lice, and the Germans are terribly persecuted by the nasty vermin. Easter is on April 9, and they celebrate by firing cannons and muskets three times. After that, they listen to a sermon and do their devotions. Their new guide, a person of an excellent good humor, brings a meal of dried fish, bread, pomegranates, apples, pears, pickled cucumbers, preserved garlic, and Shiraz wine, which Olarius says is the most esteemed of any that grows in Persia.
they arrive in Ardabil, where they will stay for two months, on April 10, and with greater pomp and magnificence than they had met in Shimaki. About a league from the city, Governor Kelbela Khan, described as a low man but of good aspect and pleasant humor, meets them with more than a thousand horse-mounted troops. The usual things happen, of course, including flags, music, dancing, and singing, but one scene seems rather unique, so instead of paraphrasing, I will use an extended quote. Near the city stood the guards, in two files, having their bows and arrows in their hands, coats of mail about their bodies, and their heads covered with little caps, in which they had placed abundance of feathers, the ends whereof some thrust through their caps into the skin. Many of them were naked down to the waist, and though they had the flesh of their arms and breasts pierced with daggers, yet did they not seem sensible of any pain. Whence we inferred there might be something of charm in it, and that they were sorcerers, there being an abundance that deserve that name in Persia. When we were come somewhat near the city, there was so great a confluence of people that we could not get a hundred paces forward without making a halt, insomuch that they were forced to drive them away with cudgels and bull's pizzles, so to make them give way. And within the city all the windows, housetops, steeples, and trees were so full of those who came from all parts to see our passage through it. In case you're wondering, a bull's pizzle is exactly what it sounds like. The word pizzle, from the low German pessel, or Flemish pezel, originally from a Dutch word meaning sinew, occurred in English as early as the 1520s, especially in the way Olarius uses it, the penis of a bull used as a flogging instrument. In Henry IV, Part I, Shakespeare's famous rogue, Falstaff, uses the term when trading insults with Prince Harry. The Germans finally make it to the venue where the governor will officially welcome them, and Olarius calls it one of the noblest structures I ever saw. After walking through a spacious garden, they climb ten steps to what he calls a summer house, where the governor honors every gentleman of the embassy by presenting each man a vessel full of wine, with his own hands, no less. The rest of the retinue are welcomed in a tent below the house that has been purposely pitched there to that end. The summer house, Hilarius tells us, had been built by the previous governor, a person of infinite wealth, using a model obtained in Turkey. A three-story octagon, each level has its own fountains which propel water higher than the roof of the house. The walls are made of glittering red, green, and blue stones. The floors are covered with the richest tapestries in Persia. A gallery full of marble statues surrounds the structure. At each corner is a couch, four feet square and covered with silk fabric, installed in remembrance of the Shah, who had rested there as he passed through Artabil one day. The couches are so holy that an iron rail prevents anyone from coming near them. After the party, the ambassadors are conducted to spacious lodgings, which had once housed the High Chancellor of Persia, located in the best part of the city. The next day they receive enough food for three full meals, a ritual feast that is provided to visiting lords and other persons of quality. The so-called Feast of the Taberic, delivered to the Germans, consists of 32 large basins full of multicolored rice, which serve as a bed for different kinds of boiled and roasted meat. The servants carry the dishes on their heads and set them down on a cloth that has been placed on the ground. According to Olarius, this ritual meal has been passed down from the followers of Sheikh Safi, 1252 to 1334 AD, 
a Kurdish poet, mystic, teacher, and Sufi master who founded the Safavid religious order that eventually gave rise to the Safavid Empire in 1501. We will hear more about Ardabil in a future episode, including the city's extraordinarily large rats, which require a special market for hunting cats. But the kitchen that delivers the food is part of Safi's shrine, an opulent complex of buildings dating from the 14th century onward and clustered around the sheikh's tomb. Valerius says the Germans are not overpleased with this entertainment, not only because they find it difficult to sit on the floor, but also because they are forbidden to drink any wine. To make up for it, Brueggemann orders their cannons to fire and their trumpets to sound. They also attempt to give some gifts to their Persian hosts, but the holiness of the place forbids them from accepting any presents. The next day, April 11, they are informed that their daily allowance of provisions for the next two months will be 16 sheep, 200 eggs, 4 batmans of butter, which comes to 26 pounds, 13 pounds of raisins, 6.5 pounds of almonds, 450 pounds of wine, 13 pounds of syrup, meal and honey, and an abundance of poultry. The governor also delivers extraordinary presents on occasion, and Olarius says the total amount of food provided during their stay in Ardabil is 12,740 pounds of bread, 40,625 pounds of wine, 60,450 pounds of eggs, 3,100 pounds of sheep, and 3,068 pounds of lamb. The governor comes for his first visit on April 12 and informs them that he has sent an express courier to Isfahan, asking the Shah for his orders regarding the next leg of the journey. In the next episode, we hear Adam Olarius tell his version of the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca, which includes the dismembering of a camel, and how Muhammad relayed the story of Abraham by dressing it up and falsifying the truth of it in all its circumstances, on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. <laughs>